0: Welcome to Jury Duty, I'm your host Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who is accused of murdering his son Paul and his wife Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we continued our review of the testimony of gunshot forensics expert Megan Fletcher. In this installment, we conclude our look at Ms. Fletcher's testimony and begin our review of the testimony of Annette Griswold, who worked as a paralegal at Alex Murdoch's former law firm. That's all coming up right after the break.
1: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist,
0: It is the morning of February 8th, 2023, Day 11 of the Trial of Alex Murdoch. As we concluded our last episode, defense attorney Jim Griffin confirmed with forensics expert Megan Fletcher that it was possible the gunshot residue, or GSR, found on the seatbelt of Alex Murdoch's vehicle could have been left there any number of years prior, as GSR lasts on a surface forever unless it is purposefully removed. As we begin today, Jim Griffin asks the witness about her analysis of the Blue Range Jacket found at the home of Alex Murdoch's mother, Libby.
2: Now, you were also asked to uh, do an analysis of, of Blue Rain Jacket. Do you remember that? Yes, sir, I did. And, and once again, just like the seatbelt, there's no way for you to know when the gunshot primer residue was deposited on the Blue Rain Jacket. That's correct. It could be at any point in time from the date that Blue Rain Jacket was manufactured, right?
1: Well, probably not on the manufacturer date unless they were firing. Correct. guns in the manufacturing plant, but uh, any time after a consumer takes possession, probably. So
2: if a consumer took possession of that garment four years ago, and in some, and we're going to talk about how you can get gunshot primer residue on it, but unless it's cleaned off or washed off, it'll stay for four years. It could, yes. You have no idea how gunshot primer residue ended up on that garment, Correct.
1: I cannot tell you how it got there.
2: Or when it got there.
1: Or when it got there.
2: Or whether it was being worn when it got there, whether, whether it was being worn inside out when it when it was deposited on there, or whether it was laid on top of a gun, for example.
1: I cannot tell you any of those scenarios. Okay. So Mr. Randolph
2: Murdoch, are you aware that this rain jacket was found in a closet in September of 2021 at Mr. Randolph Murdoch's home? That was the information that was on this submission, yes. And he died, I think, on June 10th, 2021. Were you aware of that?
1: I remember hearing news about it.
2: But if if he, before he got into his truck, had taken off this poncho and flipped it over and threw it on the back seat of his truck where he kept his shotgun bow whoop and it laid on top of this dirty old shotgun, it could have deposited uh, 38 particles of gunshot primer residue, right?
1: Uh, if the shotgun was not clean, there is a potential for the transfer off of that shotgun, yes.
2: And if the gun, sh-
0: Bow Whoop, hadn't been cleaned in years, it would be... Prosecutor Metters rises and asks Judge Clifton Newman to seek clarification from Jim Griffin regarding his reference in the previous question. Objection, um, hey, what's he saying?
2: Bow Whoop. Bow Whoop. B-O-W-H-O-O-P. The name of Mr. Randolph Murdoch's shotgun. If that shotgun hadn't been cleaned in years... It'd be more likely you would get gunshot residue deposited on anything that came on top of it, right?
1: Uh, the transfer would be more likely, yes, sir.
2: Now, you also testified that 38 particles of gunshot primer residue was a significant amount. Yes, you sir. Am saying that? Yes, sir. So I guess then you would agree with me that one particle on the hand is an insignificant amount.
1: I, I can just say that it was present. I can't tell you that it's insignificant, it's, it's just there.
2: Yeah, you can say 38 is significant.
1: Because it's much more than you would expect on an item that wasn't in the vicinity or didn't come into contact with an object with gunshot primer residue on it. Uh, One particle, I can't tell you when or how or it got there.
2: Well, would you agree with three particles on a shirt is an insignificant amount?
1: It's just three particles on a shirt, and it can be one of the two ways or a combination of the two ways of being in the vicinity or transfer. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, you're comfortable saying 38 is significant, but you're not comfortable saying 1 is insignificant.
1: Insignificant implies that the evidence itself is insignificant, but it's a particle of gunshot primer residue. I'm not going to say that it's insignificant evidence.
2: Well, should you say 38 is significant, or do you say the 38 particles? are
1: Significant, implying that it's a large amount, Uh, not that it's a small amount, but a large amount.
2: So is 3 a small amount?
1: Uh, Not in the not in how many that we get normally it's about average
2: in addition to the, the rain jacket and i think that is item 173 in, in your lab you were also provided a blue tarp item 174 you remember receiving a blue tarp yes sir and after discussing the scenario presented by the witness with captain ryan neal you and he decided that there was no need to process the blue tarp seized from Alameda, correct? Correct. And are you aware that this witness is with Shelley Smith?
1: I I am now. I was not aware who the witness was at the time.
0: So in your conversation with Agent Ryan Neal, he says, don't worry about the tarp. Prosecutor Metters objects on the grounds that statements by Agent Ryan are inadmissible hearsay testimony. Judge Clifton Newman sustains the objection.
2: After your conversation with Ryan Neal about what a witness had relayed to him, you, in consultation with Agent Neal, decided not to test the tarp.
1: That's correct. That was based on the that the raincoat was balled up in a closet versus the tarp being folded in a container, and in place in a in a location.
2: When you say balled up, what do you mean?
1: I I wasn't there, so I don't know. But that was the information. It was haphazardly placed in the bottom of the closet. Okay.
2: If it had been folded and placed on top of some other items in the closet, would that have made a difference to you?
1: I'm not sure. That would have had to have been a discussion I, between the agents and my management.
2: Have, have you seen all the photos of the search warrant, where the, where it was found, and how it was folded or not folded, bald or not balled? I've seen one photo. The one that's in evidence here? I'm not sure. You were informed that, that from Agent Neal that – You documented that the supposition was that the firearm was in contact with the rain jacket.
1: They were trying to determine, I think, whether a firearm was in contact with the rain jacket, and that was a possibility given my results.
2: So do you remember what you did with the blue tarp? Put it in storage and it's never been taken out
1: again to your knowledge? To my knowledge, I don't know what happened to the blue tarp.
2: Did you ever have any involvement with the blue tarp after um, it was presented to your evidence lab?
3: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
0: Defense attorney Jim Griffin continues his cross-examination of Megan Fletcher, asking her about whether or not fingerprint evidence was found on the blue rain jacket.
2: The the rain jacket did um, work. Do you know if fingerprints were taken off the rain jacket?
1: I don't know of any other uh, analyses performed on the rain jacket.
2: Would would you have been able to tell if there had been lifts for fingerprints when it came to you? Uh,
1: For gunshot primer residue evidence, the trace lab always gets it first because any other processes might remove the gunshot primer residue, so no other analyses would have taken place prior to ours
2: the rain jacket was slated I believe you testified for further DNA analysis
1: that was what was on the outside of the box
2: yes sir and because of that you and um agent Jamie Hall wore uh, gloves and a and a gown and a mask right
1: uh, we always wear gloves and the lab jacket but the, the mask was added because of the DNA requests
2: do you know the results of the DNA analysis I do not you were uh some photos that were introduced and the evidence and of of the rain jacket. And I I just want to publish two more that
0: that were introduced in uh, 438. Defense attorney Griffin displays a document on the courtroom monitor for Agent Fletcher. Agent Fletcher, can you see that? I can. What's that?
1: This is uh, a page out of my case file uh, that I prepared for my technical reviewer uh, and as part of my information to keep with me. It's a, a picture of the packaging, the paper bag that the rain jacket was included in with the documentation on it, as well as the tag from the rain jacket labeling the brand of it, the size of it, and it also has our lab information and the initials and date in which it was analyzed by the Trace Department.
2: Okay, uh, the bottom of this, I don't know if you can see it, but there's a date of 10-8-2021. Is that, is that when you took the photo?
1: Uh, no sir that's when i prepared the powerpoint um for inclusion in my case file
2: thanks so doug you'll go to the next exhibit 439 please and there you've labeled uh manufacturer's tags you see that yes sir Can you tell the jury what size this rain jacket is it's a large okay and do you know this brand name cut
0: Uh
1: i had to look it up i wasn't familiar with it prior to this case
2: okay uh,
0: with that, Jim Griffin concludes his cross-examination of Agent Fletcher. Prosecutor matters then rises to begin a brief redirect examination of the witness.
4: Mr. Uh, Griffin asked you about 38 particles in the uh, parka, poncho, rain jacket, the blue garment. Yes, sir. Actually, how many particles were on the garment?
1: Uh, in total, there were 52 particles. There were 14 that I confirmed on the outside of the uh, rain jacket, and there were 38 on the interior of the rain jacket. And I
4: confused myself yesterday, there were 13 particle lifts and 12 particle lifts, correct? And then out of that, you found the 52 particle characteristics of gunshot primer residue, correct? That's correct. And 38 of those were on the inside? Yes, sir. That's what he asked you about, 14 were on the outside? Yes, sir. And when you wear that garment, you typically wear it insides inside. is that what it means? I would think so. If, and, and, and and he asked you, is it a possibility that a firearm come in contact with the rain jacket, and you said it's possible, it's really possible, it? I mean, those numbers are unusual, aren't they, 38?
1: Uh, for the interior of a garment, I would think that they were unusual, yes. And that's
4: common sense, isn't
0: it? Jim Griffin objects on the grounds that the prosecution's question is leading. Judge Newman sustains the objection, and John Metters rephrases the question.
4: How do you describe that in your world, everyday living and in your examining it? How do you describe those particles inside of a garment that you're supposed to wear with the outside outside?
1: Well, typically people wear their clothing right side out, and so if they're in the vicinity to the discharge of a shooting, that's where the particles are going to
4: land. On the outside? Yes, sir. And Mr. Griffin asked you about, I think, a hypothetical. If Scratch's uh, father's gun had laid on it and it was in a truck, would the 38 particles inside of the rain jacket be consistent with a recently fired firearm being contained inside?
1: It could be, yes.
4: With a recently signed firearm being carried inside of that rain jacket? Just inside the rain jacket. I don't know that it matters if you're carrying it. Okay, right. you're, you're very technical and precise, okay. But if you were carrying it, and you had a gun inside that rain jacket that had recently been fired, uh, and you were taking it somewhere to hide it, or transport it, would the 38 particles inside inside the rain jacket be consistent with transfer from a recently fired firearm? That is a possibility, yes, sir. And again, how did you describe those 38 particles in your world? I-
1: they're unusual because they're on the interior of a garment. Un- Go ahead.
4: And it's a large number. Unusual because they're on the interior of a garment,
0: and an unusual number. A large number. Jim Griffin objects to Prosecutor Metters leading the witness. Metters rephrases the question and concludes his redirect by saying, quote, the last answer for the record was a large number, unquote.
4: The last answer for the record was a large number.
0: Jim Griffin rises for a brief recross.
2: Very, very briefly, um, Agent Fletcher, what what I gather, there's just a whole lot of possibilities of what could have happened, right? That's correct. The only thing you can tell us is what you saw under a microscope. Yes, sir. You can't tell the story how it got there, right? That's correct. Or when it got there. That's correct. And, um,
1: okay, and
2: I forgot to ask one, one further question. A rimfire gun, does it produce gunshot primer residue?
1: Rimfire ammunition does produce gunshot primer residue. Some don't produce the traditional lead-barium and antimony. Others do. Um, It just depends on what type of ammunition is used.
0: All right, thank you. With that, Megan Fletcher is excused from the witness stand. The state next calls Annette Griswold. Ms. Griswold has shoulder-length brown hair parted in the center. She wears a beige blouse, and a gold medallion hangs from her neck. Creighton Waters handles the questioning for the prosecution. He first asks Ms. Griswold to offer the jury a bit of biographical information about herself. She testifies that she grew up in Hampton, South Carolina, and that she started working as a paralegal for Alex Murdoch at the defendant's former law firm, Peters Murdoch, Parker Eltroth and Dietrich, or PMPED, in July of 2012. And
5: the entirety of the time that you were there up until the time that he was no longer a partner of that firm, is that who you worked for? That's correct. So how long was that?
3: That was a little over nine years. Were you the uh, only staff member that he had that was assigned to him? No, we have. Um, there's two of us that worked for Ellick. Um I'd been with him, like I said, the nine years, and then the other secretary was Christy Gerald, and she had been with him about, almost double of what I had been there.
5: Quickly describe for me sort of the division of labor between you and Christy Gerald, please.
3: I was hired to handle more of the larger cases that like had, you know, where it's litigation law and so it's personal injury for the most part, workers' comp, medical malpractice, premises liability, product liability, wrongful death trucking cases, and so he wanted me to take over those bigger cases and handle those, and then Christy did more of the day-to-day stuff and the smaller files. Still just as important, but just smaller files than the larger ones. You had the more complex stuff? I did. The bigger cases? Yes, sir. Just
5: quickly, uh, how was uh, the defendant, um, as a Boston a lawyer, uh, just, just what were his typical work habits, and what was he like in the office?
3: Extremely intelligent when it comes to the law. Um, I respected and admired that in him greatly. He didn't keep normal hours, um... He liked to float in later in the late morning time or early afternoon. We always had a running joke. We knew that he might not be there all day, but he would always show up right before 5 o'clock when we were ready to leave. So um, just, you know, kept unset hours. Pretty, um, I sometimes call, referred to Alec as a Tasmanian devil because when he walked in, no matter what you were doing, you were start spinning because he was just coming through and, you know, shouting everybody's name and ready to get work done when he was walking in the door. So it was like, it was kind of confusing.
5: Let me ask you just a little bit, Uh, the jury's heard some testimony about disbursement sheets and how they work and can you, you just remind them very quickly uh, how that works who prepares the disbursement sheets and how does that go about uh, taking
3: place after I find out that a case is settled I go ahead and start getting my disbursement sheet ready where I can kind of go ahead and expect what the deductions are that are going to come out of it you know the attorney's fees the expenses anytime you have Medicare or any health insurance there's te- typically a lien on that money and we are required by law to pay it back so I go ahead and start looking and all that draft the sheet and get everything on it that I know that I'm aware of, and then it goes to ellick and he has to he makes any changes he needs to, and then he would sign once he signs off on it. I send it across to our accounts payable department, and they cut the checks.
5: Uh, are you familiar with what uh, is generally referred to as the boat case? I am, and that is the uh, boat wreck that occurred around February 2019. Yes, sir. Are you aware that uh, the defendant was sued civilly in that particular case? Yes, sir. After the boat case happened, did you notice any change in the defendant's demeanor uh, around the office and about his work habits?
3: I did. Um, He was more distant. Even when he was in the office, he was absent it was hard to he's always been hard to sit still and and get answers from and and to sign our documents and anything that we had put in his office to sign but it got extremely worse after the boat accident he was rarely there and when he was the door was closed and it was almost impossible for us to to reach him like even he was always on his phone he was always dealing with something bigger than what we had going on as time
5: moved on into the early part of 2021 did that even get worse
3: it did he he would come in lots of times And he was just not his normal self, or what his normal self used to be. It was just very tense, and I I don't know how to describe it. It It's just you could tell that it was the boat crash was weighing heavy on him, and he was it was consuming his life almost. It seemed like, and he was he was just harder to reach. And there was a couple instances where I referred to him as having his ass on his shoulders because that's how I felt. It was disrespectful of me to, you know, to feel that way and to say that out loud. But that's how I felt because he just wasn't his self with us anymore. He came in and it was just like yelled our names and and just didn't treat us the same way he did prior to the boat accident.
5: Was the defendant uh, very protective about anyone going into his office?
3: He was. There was often times where he would. <laughs> come in on a Monday and say, who's been in my office? And we'd be like, I don't know, probably the cleaning ladies. Uh, you know, we have no idea. He was, you know, it was very cluttered, very unorganized, but he said he knew where his stuff was, that it was organized in his way.
0: Creighton Waters next asks Ms. Griswold about her knowledge of Alex Murdoch routing disbursements to a company account that, as was later discovered, the defendant fraudulently established for his own benefit
5: jurys heard a lot of testimony about this, and just in the interest of time, I'm gonna ask it this way uh, over the years in various cases, did the defendant uh, ask you uh, to put disbursements to forge on various disbursement sheets uh, so that settlement checks would be prepared from the trust account made out that way
3: yes, sir, he did um I can't remember when it started, but he told me you know to put it on forge, and i me knowing forge consulting was a legitimate company, I would on the disbursement sheet, I would put forge consulting and he would say, no, it's not Forge Consulting. If I wanted to to be Forge Consulting, I would have told you Forge Consulting. I want it to be Forge. And I was like, well, I don't understand. Is it the name of the company, Forge Consulting? And he told me that, to, he described it to me, he said, think of it like Forge Consulting is the large company, and Forge is uh, kind of under that umbrella of it. So he said, Forge Consulting is the big name, and then you have all different things they do, including Forge, which is more like a savings account than a trust. So he would actually
5: get you to change it from forge consulting to just forge
3: correct even when the across the street at the accounts payable department they would write the check out to forge consulting i would lots of times i would have to reach out to them and say hey you you wrote this to forge consulting he says it needs to be forged and so lots of times they would have to change that Uh,
5: those checks that he would have on disbursement sheets to get cut um, made out to forge uh, would he often uh, talk to you about picking those up personally
3: Yes, I would ask him if I could go ahead and mail it to um, Michael Gunn at Forge Consulting because he was our contact, and um, he would say, no, you know what, I'm seeing gun this weekend. Uh, we're, we're He's coming out to the farm or we're going to meet halfway tonight and have dinner. He always said that he was going to hand deliver it. So I even got to where I would make file notes in my files. Ellic took check to hand deliver because I was so worried that he was going to lose these checks because he was, you know, a little aloof sometimes and, you know, would leave keys in his vehicle, would lose, misplaced a few things. And so I was so worried that these checks were going to get lost and then we would have to do a stop payment and reissue the check. So I started making notes where I would remember that I didn't mail it that it was actually hand delivered well hand
0: delivered at least from who was telling you it was
3: going to that's be correct
0: yes was saying that Alex was and with that we bring to a close this episode of jury duty the trial of Alex Murdoch please join us on our next installment as we continue our review of the testimony of Alex Murdoch's former paralegal Annette Griswold also check out the crime story podcast Night raid wherever you get your podcasts. And, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff—shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods—all at 50-80% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part— You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie and Tholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.